is a global initiative to end Hep C by 2030, and there's definitely one in the city of San Francisco to end it by 2030. I think the new infections happen primarily with chaotic injection. We have a lot of safe injection counseling and classes and one-on-ones and stuff like that. This is upstream prevention. If we're curing the people that are on the street and being forced to inject chaotically and in a terrified manner, if we can do that, then we can also prevent the new infections as well. You know, the thing about harm reduction is that it's really not, these are not crazy wild ideas. These are just, it's just common sense. You do what works. You know, 20, 25 years ago, the needle exchanges and not just doing one for one exchange, but giving people what they need to keep them safe seemed like a wild idea. And now it's best practices. And I think the things I'm talking about now are going to be best practices in the future. BrightSpark is a podcast about harm reduction. In this podcast, we feature people doing the bold, innovative, and necessary work that is saving lives and fighting against the stigmatization of drug users and drug use. This is episode four, Treat First. In this episode, we feature Polly Gray, who has worked within harm reduction in the San Francisco Bay Area for the last 20 years. He is the Hep C Program Manager for Syringe Access Services for the San Francisco AIDS Foundation and has worked extensively in harm reduction with needle exchange and HIV and hepatitis C services. I had the pleasure of seeing Polly's presentation about the work he is doing running a low barrier hepatitis C clinic at the 2018 Harm Reduction Conference. And we are very happy that Polly was willing to share his work here. My name is Polly Gray, and currently I'm the FC Programs Manager for Syringe Access Services in San Francisco and the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, and I still run needle exchange sites as well. My history of harm reduction comes from being on both sides of the drug war. I've been on this side of the drug war for 20 years, and I came to volunteer here when I first started that new kind of life. And I started with AIDS work, and then after three years, I switched to doing AIDS and needle exchange work simultaneously. So I started as a volunteer in 97. I started working in the field officially in 98. And then in 2001, I started doing both AIDS work and needle exchange work. In 2004, I started working for the DOSE Project, which is an overdose prevention education project, which is the anti-big anti-overdose Narcan group. I carried all those jobs for some years, and then primarily I've been doing hep C and overdose work for the last 10 years or so. I saw you speak in New Orleans about the low barrier or no barrier hep C clinic that you were helping organize and run. Before we ask you specifically about that project, I just wanted you to go over what are the treatments for hep C currently? It's a primary care-based model. You get these very expensive meds from your primary care provider, and you have to, to prove that you know you're going to be clean and sober for three to six months, to um, so they think you'll take the meds and not get reinfected. But Hep C, I think, is a highly stigmatized disease. My personal gut feeling is that it's you know institutionalized stigma against active drug users that really drove this, where you have these communicable diseases, including HIV and tuberculosis, you know. And put 60 of them together, they're not as deadly as the Hep C. But there was very little funding for Hep C and very little support in research. Part of the situation is that the treatments were chemotherapy for many years. They were highly toxic. I'm a 30-year Hep C survivor, and I tried the old treatments, and they almost killed me. And they all worked 44% of the time. They didn't work for me. So early Hep C work with drug users, really trying to get people into clinical trials. And the old method of looking at it was, 
the treatment is worse than the disease because it takes your liver out very slowly. About three years back now, they came out with new meds that worked really well, and it changed everything. I am tasked by the NHEPC San Francisco movement, which I am deeply embedded in and very involved in and proud of. We got some funding here to come up with a Hep C program. I was doing Hep C work, but like by myself. And so I built a program that was is drug user up. What I've been able to build here is a treatment where we do treatment right at the needle exchange. We have two wonderful nurse practitioners, Pierre Cedric Crouch and Janessa Broussard, which is the treat first model. And I know from personal experience and relentless anecdotal experience from users, um, the crushing fatigue and depression that comes with FC while your body's poisoning itself. But what people don't talk about is that the brain fog that accompanies it is worse than either of them. You can't function. So I got all these folks who people say, well, they're too high barrier. They're not worth treating. They're just going to get reinfected, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We have only had two reinfections in all the years I've been doing this, which is much less than anywhere else. And I deal with the people that are at the highest risk. And they said, we're not going to treat these folks. They're just going to get reinfected. And the truth is, by treating a needle exchange, we have a start-off point where people are coming to get clean needles so they do care about themselves. They can get treated right at the needle exchange where they come anyway, and they don't have to jump through any hoops or go make a bunch of appointments that they're that it's too difficult for them to make. Life is really challenging. Being Most of my clients are homeless. Just surviving on the street and being able to not be sick from withdrawal and just all the challenges that people face and mental health and trauma and shame, it's so much that people don't make these series of appointments or staying out of sober for three to six months. It's all just sounded crazy to me. And after a month on these new meds, which work remarkably well, and occasionally there's some little side effects, but nothing like the old ones, and usually there's none. I know that people feel so much better in a month on these meds that then their heads are clear and they've accomplished this wonderful thing. That what we do is we treat them, take care of them. We have a packed support group and a lot of clients taking care of each other that if we do that and establish this positive thing with them, then we get them primary care appointments and then they start doing all these other things. So if I had hep C and lived in San Francisco and I went to your program, what's the treatment like? How does it work? Do you come in and see me or one of my navigators during our hep C hours? You get tested. We do a blood draw immediately for the antibody test. And once you have hep C or once you're exposed, you'll always have the antibodies. We do the blood draw to do the antibody test. If you're test positive for the antibodies, we send the blood work in immediately. And I give you a $10 gift card to come back in a week. When you come back, if you're one of the lucky 20% where you've cleared, we give you the gift card and we do a safety counseling session about, we include safe injection and all kinds of things in this. We make sure that you're well-educated about how to not get infected. If you're one of the 80% that needs treatment, we enroll you right there. We do the next draw, which is to send in to get the genotype and the viral load, and we send for your meds immediately. No harm, no foul. People on taking medicine within seven to 10 days after that. Once they're enrolled in the program, they can be part of the program, which is this support group that has a lot of clients who are the cured folks come back because we have a really strong family unit among the Hep C folks here. And we're open 54 hours a week at that needle exchange. We provide a lot of wraparound services as well. One thing that we have is tremendous buy-in, as I said. So people that get cured, when they get cured, because it's an end of shame and isolation. And so we have the people that are cured come back and help the people who are just starting or in the process. And it's this whole supportive thing. 
And it's the best reinfection prevention because people constantly teaching others how to use safely reinforces it for them. Pepsi treatment has a pretty strict schedule. What have you been doing to try and help people stay on track on this schedule? What kind of services do you offer or what are some ways you've encountered that challenge? Well, one of the things that we do is that we have a locker system where homeless folks can keep their meds there every day. The new Hep C meds, the one we use usually is Maverick, which is a two-month course of meds, and then you check it in three months after that to make sure it's gone. But uh, it's almost invariably gone in a month. So what we do is we let people keep their meds there in a locker. They have the combo. They take their meds in and out of the locker. You need to eat a little something with it. So we have food available for them 54 hours. We have really good, healthy food at the group. We have a breakfast club in the morning. They want to eat a full breakfast with their meds, and so they can come whenever they want and take their pill. And so it's very doable for them. And then you said you've had two reinfections in the history. How many people have you treated? Do you there are between that? 80 and 100. And this is 80 to 100 folks that, well, in the whole time, probably closer to 100. But directly, it's because I treat people all over the city. They join our group, and we get them treated wherever they want to treat. Lately, everybody just wants to do it with us. The word is out. I've had two. We were part of this HERO study, which is a great study where they, uh, two-year study, where they were getting people have seen meds and following their progress. And there was nine nationwide sites, and they all had reinfections, including the other one in San Francisco, but I had zero. So they had this big conversation about we're seeing all these reinfections now. And, and, and I was able to say to them, well, this is the model I use. We've had none. The two reinfections we had, one was five years ago before the new meds were even out. The guy went to rehab. Because he kept missing his appointments. He was a speed user. And he kept missing appointments. So I said, why don't you go to rehab for three months, just long enough to take these pills? And he said, okay. And he did. He got so attached to being sober that after he got cured, he was doing that. And then he had a relapse, and it's such shame that he shared on purpose. So I've since gotten him cured again, and he's doing fine. He's going back to school. It's his secondary goal. He's starting to be a chef. And the other person had severe mental health issues. And that's the only two reinfections that we've had which proves that they are dead wrong when they're saying drug users are just going to get reinfected and they don't care about themselves and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's a bunch of bull. Because if you provide support that is designed for them, not handed down to them, if you know what I mean, then it obviously works. And I get to tell them every week at group what they are accomplishing. They're showing people that that's not true. It means a great deal for them. If you were to try and give some advice or lessons that you've learned from running this clinic to someone else wanting to help treat hep C, what are some suggestions uh, that you would give? So I only deal with what they call high-hanging fruit, huge barrier people. And it's not barriers and it's not a challenge. It's an opportunity because you're engaged so thoroughly with them for the two or sometimes three months on meds. And then three months after while they wait for that last test, I've created a secondary goal program where people... Take a second thing to work on, but you view it, first of all, view it as an opportunity. It's a great opportunity to work with somebody and partner with them. We make a partnership with each client to facilitate this huge change in people's lives, and it almost invariably happens. So I would invite people to do that. I invite people to get the folks on meds and get them feeling better before you make them jump through any hoops. And the third thing I would say is provide wraparound services. We provide wound care, substance use counseling, we have Suboxone available. Of course, we have all the supplies at the needle exchange available. Have A and B vaccines, flu shots, basic medical care. We do all this stuff at the same place for drug users. And the other thing that we have is a peer program where the people that get cured come back and they get incentivized to help the new people. And it keeps them involved and it creates community. 
I call the program Treat First. And we do get them primary care. We just wait till they're feeling better and they're actually going to show up at the appointment. It also gives me time to pick specific primary care providers that don't stigmatize drug users. People invariably have horrible histories with the medical profession, and they've been treated with a lot of disdain and just completely stigmatized, and they don't want to go. Once you have built trust with them and they're feeling so much better and they've accomplished this wonderful thing, that is the perfect time to make their secondary goal getting a doctor who can take care of the rest of their health needs and not stigmatize them and a doctor they'll show up for. Some of the other secondary goals are things like, I want to get my kids back. Everybody who's wanted to get their kids back has their kids back now. I want to get a job. People get a job. I want to go back to school. I want to get housed. So we work with them on that simultaneously. Since you've been doing this for so long and you've been doing it in San Francisco, can you talk about the changes in the city just becoming more polarized? There is a lot of um, gentrification and people who are homeless or marginally housed and drug users on the street keep getting displaced. Some people don't do well. Many people don't do well in the shelter system. There's just a lot of barriers there. So it just makes what we do more important. But we're open 54 hours at the Harm Reduction Center. So it gives people a home base to get, first of all, treated with respect, which anybody that's harm reduction knows is paramount. I think it's really important to provide the services. You know, this is what it is. People talk about harm reduction, and they always say, we meet them where they're at. I say it's not a philosophy. Physically, we have to meet them where they're at. Like they have a safe place to go at this needle exchange in this harm reduction center, and there's other programs there, and there's other groups there, and there's all these sort of things there. Let's bring the services to where drug users go anyway. It's hard enough. And so the effectiveness of this has been magnified by the, the ongoing failed drug war, but also the war on the homeless. And, you know, in a lot of cities, they have really specific neighborhoods. Like in Vancouver, where I went to visit the safe injection site there in 2007, I think. And it's DTES, which is downtown east side. And so a lot of the drug use is really focused in that neighborhood. In San Francisco, it's spread out, and it keeps moving because they keep getting chased away by people. So to have a place where people are safe and they come to, that, that, that makes it even more important. Polly, what's next for your clinic? What do you dream of being able to do with it? We've established this wonderful thing that works for drug users. And you know what? Having my history and knowing all these people for all these years and asking them and asking them, I know that this is what works for, for folks and it is proven to be true. So the next thing I want to do is we're a really big needle exchange, and we have a bunch of mobile sites, and I want to bring the treatment on the road. People go out and they test out in the, in the needle exchanges and the homeless outreaches, but then what do you do after that? The people are in the wind again. So I want to bring the test and treat model to the mobile needle exchanges and the outreach sites, and I'm working with folks to try to do that now. Once again, if you want to meet people where they're at, go where they're at. Sounds awesome. Yeah. Is there anything that you wanted to touch on or anything to add? Yeah, and this is probably risque, but I really think that we should. I know some wonderful doctors at NTFC, and they're wonderful and they supported me. But we have two nurse practitioners that do this, and you don't need a doctor to do this. The nurse practitioners can prescribe the meds, they can do the wound care, they can do the care, and it's a lot easier to get nurse practitioners out to mobile sites and out to needle exchanges than it is to get a doctor who has no bandwidth. We have to really increase the amount of prescribers. And I think we have to always, always, always think drug user up. And like meeting them where they're at is not just a theory to me. Ask drug users if it's going to work for them. Do It's obvious what's going to work for folks. They go to needle exchange anyway, put the service where they go. 
no matter what it is. Just hope that this kind of thing and this way of, of treating folks spreads. And the secondary goal thing is a really, it has worked well. I was hoping that people would hit 50% of their secondary goals and are hitting 90. That this is an opportunity. The high barrier clients, if we have a five or six month window with people when they're going to feel hugely better in that window, that we should take advantage of it and try to partner with them to, to accomplish these things. A lot of the folks I don't see anymore because you know what? They're not on the street anymore. <laughs> And they're feeling better, you know, and they're safe. So it's a great goal. You know, they, they do come to group to support others, and then I don't see them. And that's great. That's great. A couple of them, not that many, but some still have chaotic lives, but they're able to survive on the street more easily. If they can get an appointment for housing or something, they're actually able to show up for it. And they know they always have a safe space to go. They're always welcome at this program and in our space. Isolation is a terrible enemy, and feeling unsafe 24-7 is a terrible enemy. Being able to alleviate that is, is a wonderful gift. So it's, it's not a challenge as much as an opportunity for us, and I hope that eventually other places will use this model. Thank you for the work you do. Thanks for sharing the work you're doing with us. So thank you for asking me. Shortly after we interviewed Polly, we heard that Oregon's Medicaid plan was lifting barriers to treatment for people with hepatitis C. We asked Sam, who we featured in BrightSpark number three, to leave us a voicemail explaining what these changes will be. So uh, as of January 1st, 2019, OHP, the Oregon Medicaid plan, is no longer requiring that people that have hepatitis C need to be sober or be in some form of treatment in order to qualify for the kind of new direct acting antivirals or for OHP to cover those. And starting March 1st, 2019, the requirement around fibrosis level or, you know, liver scarring are going to be removed. So effectively, um, starting March 1st, 2019, anyone with OHP that has hepatitis C should be eligible for these new treatments. And there are no special requirements or certifications for providers to treat hepatitis C using these new acting antivirals. However, many providers may be uncomfortable or unfamiliar with them, so hopefully we can get primary care providers to be able to prescribe these medications and um, get people cured. Um, yeah. This episode is produced by myself, Alec Dunn. I am a harm reductionist and a nurse, and by Aaron Yankee, who is a documentarian and a radio producer. We'd like to thank KBU Community Radio in Portland, Oregon, for technical assistance. The intro music is from the song Phase One by Zylo Zico and is licensed for use by a Creative Commons non-commercial license and made available from the Free Music Archive. Outro music is the song Quasi-Stable State by Monopole and is also licensed for use by a Creative Commons non-commercial license made available from the Free Music Archive. If you have feedback, comments, suggestions, concerns, feel free to get in touch with us at brightsparkharmreduction at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.